our way through the Gospel of Mark and we find ourselves in the 10th chapter this morning. We're looking again at the verses we considered last time. And so let's read those again together. Let's draw our minds back down into the narrative and see what the Lord would have for us uh, as His people uh, on this day. And so Mark chapter 10, I want to begin reading in verse 32 through to verse 35. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, knowing full well that your word is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative. And we want to place ourselves willingly, joyfully, humbly under its authority. And we want to be instructed this morning because we so desperately need to be instructed this morning. Lord, we're prone to wander. (laughs) We're prone to get our eyes off you. Lord, we ask now, would we be in this time, in this hour, changed for life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read of a story this week about a rice farmer, believe it or not, a rice farmer who 
saved an entire village from destruction. The story went as follows, quote, From his hilltop farm, this rice farmer suddenly felt the earth quake and saw the distant ocean swiftly withdraw from the shoreline and he obviously knew then that a tidal wave was coming. But he looked down in the valley below and he saw his neighbors working in the low fields that he knew as a result of this tidal wave that was on its way that would soon be flooded. And he thought to himself, they must run quickly to this hilltop on my farm or they're all going to die, such as the devastation of tidal waves. He couldn't call out to them anyway because they weren't within earshot. And unlike the low-lying rice fields that the neighbors were in, this farmer's rice fields and his barns were dry as tinder. And so, with a quick mind and with a torch, he set fire to his field and to his barns. And soon the town fire gong started ringing. His neighbors down in that low field then saw the smoke and the fire. And they then left and rushed up to help him and it was there from their safe perch above that they then saw this tidal wave come in wash over the fields that they had just left and it was there and then that they discovered not only who had saved them but what their salvation from the tidal flood had cost this farmer It had cost him everything, everything he owned. And in the years that followed, after the farmer's passing, the neighbors and the community, many of which who survived that flood, as a result of the farmer's sacrifice, they erected a monument in his memory inscribed with these words, He gave us all he had and he gave it gladly. This poor farmer finished first, in the eyes of his community, but it cost him everything he had. The story continued on and said, there are not many people in our world like that farmer. He willingly sacrificed himself that others might succeed. Most people do everything they can to better themselves and think nothing of the people they step on as they climb to the top of the heap, end quote. The verses that we'll look at today, primarily verses 42 to 45, because we looked at 32 through to 41 last time, these verses this morning will teach us that to be most prominent is not necessarily to be be first. Because true greatness in God's economy comes from being being willing to sacrifice in service to others by being a willing slave. We don't often think of ourselves as slave, but that's indeed what we are. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, the shed blood of Jesus. And so let's recap a little. The title of the message this morning is Suffering, Selfishness and Servanthood Part 2. We saw first in verses 32 to 34, you recall, a suffering explained where we saw that Jesus, as we just read, 
that this great champion that he is, is marching ahead of the rest, pounding his way to Jerusalem, to so willing to die an unjust death at the hands of unjust men in order to atone for our sin and to bring us to God. And on the way to the cross, as he marched out front and head first, willing to suffer a death that you and I deserve to suffer, in order that, when, that you and I then receive something we never deserved, namely peace with God and the forgiveness of sins, on his way to the cross, he is foretelling what was to take place to him with prophetic precision. But the twelve disciples, for the third time now, you recall, after hearing from Jesus about his suffering, the great selfless act that that is, they respond once again with self-centeredness and self-love. And that's where we saw second in verses 35 through to 41, a selfishness exposed. And it's here we saw in contrast to the selflessness of Christ, the selfishness of the disciples. Verse 35, James and John come up to Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're asking a question that they, sorry, they're wanting, they're wanting Jesus to say yes before he even asks the question. This week, my littlest one came up to me while I was half asleep and said, Daddy, Daddy, can you just say yes what I'm about to ask you? Uh, and I thought of this passage. Um, look at verse 37. They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on the right and one on the left in your glory. They want the most prominent seats. One on the right and one on the left. And in verse 39, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that as his disciples, we are to share and will share in his sufferings. He begins this lesson. He uses metaphors. The cup and the baptism there are metaphors for suffering. That's the cup. And being immersed in deep suffering. That's the baptism. Jesus sees for now the third time this self-love and this self-seeking selfishness of his disciples. And so he begins this lesson by telling them, you are going to share in the sufferings. We must be ready to expect to experience, to share those with him. Sure, the atoning death that he'll undergo is unique to him, but a sharing in the sufferings of his, which we saw last week, suffering unjustly, is one takeaway we looked at last time. And if you missed any of those, go back online and find them, catch up. And so really against that backdrop of the twelve showing an immense love of self and Jesus showing an immense sacrificial love, we now see and pick up in verse 42, Jesus calling the twelve to himself. Verse 32, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them. What Jesus is doing here is bringing a much needed word of reproof. Verse 41 tells us that they all needed it because it wasn't just James and John. Verse 41 tells us that the other 10 became very angry with James and John, angry most likely because they shared the selfish love of self that they 
wanted, and they too wanted the prominent seat at Jesus' feet. But they were upset because James and John beat them to the punch. And so with all of that going on, verse 42, as I said, Jesus calls them to himself, gives them a word of reproof and begins a lesson that they needed and that we need because they had been infected with the lust of preeminence and self-love and the excitement of exercising authority. Two characteristics in the life of one who is selfishly ambitious and seeking glory for themselves. A lust for dominance and prominence. And how do I know they had a lust for preeminence? Well, that's been made obvious three times now. They always debate among themselves who's going to be the greatest and who gets the best seats in the kingdom. But what's with the exercising of authority business? What's with that delight? Well, we looked there last time to see where this talk about seats in glory came from, why James and John came requesting seats. But turn there again because I want to show you something else in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. What's this excitement of exercising authority? Look at verse 27 of Matthew 19. Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, meaning in the restoring of all things in the coming day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and a kingdom. When you followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon the twelve thrones. So there's the idea of the seats, right? But look what happens next. Judging, it says, he says, the twelve tribes of Israel. Not only have they been told that they will sit upon thrones alongside King Jesus, but they would also judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That is, they would exercise authority. The 12, not Judas, because he's replaced by Matthias, meaning there's two Matthews, and I always like that. They'll be involved in the ruling and the reigning. That's authority. And so here, before that takes place, what you have among the twelve, in the heart of the twelve, is a mingling of not only a desire for a prominent seat, but also a powerful seat. And when you're given such a privilege, you better not be filled with a love of self, but a love for the Savior, for a love of the Savior manifests itself in servanthood that is the servanthood just like the Savior. And so all that, back to Mark now, sets the scene for these words. Verse 42. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. Here's a lesson from Jesus. They need it at that day. We need it this day. 
And it serves, serves as the first heading that I have for you this morning. A servant leader elevated. A servant leader elevated. We just read verse 42. Now look at verse 43. But it is not this way among you. It is not this way among you, Jesus says. Jesus is giving a contrast here between two ways to greatness. I want you to note that this is not a contrast between two ways of exercising authority. It's not. This is a contrast between ruling and serving. Jesus is saying that the Gentiles, that is, the unbelievers, they seek to achieve greatness by ruling and dominating, but the follower of Christ achieves greatness by serving. We know this well. But a question we must ask is, do we do this well? Jesus wants us to be striving for greatness. He does. He's made that clear in chapter 9 and, and chapter 10. But the type of greatness we strive for matters to Jesus. And Jesus is bringing a corrective lesson here and saying that the way the world attains greatness, that is to be great in people's eyes, the way the world attains that is by dominating and lording it over people. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, greatness is attained by being a servant of all. Again, we, we know it well. It becomes Christianese. But do we do it well? One thing to know the facts, another to live out the facts. Because if the twelve had their way, and we're so much like the twelve, if the twelve had their way, as we've already seen, they would have shooed away all the kids. They would have prevented people from coming to Jesus. They would have sought comfort for themselves, tussled for the prominent seat, argued among themselves, and began to function just like those in their time did, by lording it over the people and exercising with a heavy hand. But Jesus says, don't lord with a heavy hand, lead with a servant hand. And that exactly is the point that he is making. True greatness in the kingdom and true greatness here on earth in God's eyes and in God's economy comes from serving. And if you're going to lead as the twelve would and as any leader in church does, you must be a servant leader. And that's why he says in verse 43, the most astounding and intriguing phrase But it is not this way among you. This was very interesting to study. That, those words there from Jesus. This is not an urging from Jesus for it to be this way among you. As though it's something that has to be the way. This is actually a, a statement of fact from Jesus. That this principle for true greatness is in them. As followers of Christ, as those who have become citizens now of a coming kingdom, Jesus is saying, you don't 
lead like that, you don't serve like that, you've come out of that, you've been made partakers of a coming kingdom glory, and, and this is how it is for you. You're not like the Gentile unbeliever in, in the very core of who you are. Stop acting like them, arguing and squabbling and scrambling, and start being a slave of all. It's in them, is what Jesus is saying there. Jesus is rejecting the attaining of position and leadership and greatness by any other means other than servanthood and servant leadership. It's in them. He's saying it's a statement of fact. There's a massive implication here for us this morning in light of the beginning of verse 43. And it's this. To fail to be a willing servant who serves others in the body, not by compulsion, but cheerfully, is not simply to fall short of some sort of ideal way of life for the Christian, but the very essence of who we are as Christians. Any advancement in the Christian life is advancement in serving others in their Christian life. As one commentator put it, if you want to be great, and who doesn't? Jesus wants us to be. If you want to be great, this commentator put it, the measure for that is, quote, services voluntarily rendered. Services voluntarily rendered. Serving in the church and serving others in the church isn't some kind of option for the believer. It is the overflow of the heart of the believer. And if there is a lack of services voluntarily rendered in the life of a believer, there is something wrong in the heart of the believer. For the twelve, it was selfishness and self-love and self-glory seeking. This kind of talk, I am fully aware, can sound very much like a guilt trip. You know those sermons? Get out there and evangelize. Get out there and do this. But there's no proper motivation behind it. And all you do is guilt trip and manipulate. I want to show you that this is certainly not the case here. This is not what Jesus is saying to the twelve here. Instead, I believe in all of this, we find the right motivation for attaining greatness in God's eyes and in God's economy. Because Jesus wants us to be great. True greatness. Let me show you what I mean. Back in verse 32, they were on the road to going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on the head of them. And that's there where he's telling them what's going to happen to him. He's going to die. He's going to die for us. And then in verse 45... This portion, this narrative here, ends with Jesus saying, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die for, for you. And sandwiched in between all of that is the selfish self-love from the twelve, who we mustn't disconnect ourselves from. It's easy to look at them and marvel at their block-headedness, but we are more like them than we realize. They needed this lesson that Jesus is giving, and, and so do we. Because they were given to living for themselves, and so are we. So with this all bookended, 
by Jesus saying He's going to die for us and saying that how you are great in God's eyes is by serving. So as you see that this is not a guilt trip from Jesus, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember that Jesus came to not only forgive us for our sins, but to replace our affections. Second Corinthians 5, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that, purpose clause, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. The most important thing to a believer who has their priorities right, living a Spirit-filled life, is to live not for themselves, but for Him. The Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry. He said in Romans chapter 14, verse 8, If we live, we live for the Lord. The most important thing for the believer is to live for Christ. And to live for Christ is to serve Christ. Christ and to serve Christ is to serve his people and to serve his people is to serve in his body not out of manipulation but out of motivation and what motivation it is that he died for me and rose again on my behalf and I will no longer live for myself but live for him You see, the twelve had a self-love problem. That is clear in our passages in Mark. And their self-love problem was manifested in a lack of being willing to place themselves in the humble position of a servant. Hence, Jesus' lesson to them on servanthood, servant leadership. The remedy for their self-love problem is the remedy for our self-love problem. Because our self-love problem manifests itself just like their self-love problem manifests itself, and that is in the lack of serving others. The remedy is to move from love of self to love of Saviour. Look at verse 14 in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 again. For the love of Christ compels us. This is not talking about, in this verse here, our love for Jesus. This is talking instead, as you know, perhaps, this is talking about His love for us. When we grasp how immense His love for us is, 
it moves us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Him. The remedy for selfish self-love, which has as its fruit a lack of being willing to serve others, is a love for the Savior. When we grasp His love for us, we love because He first loved us. When we appropriate both His love for us and then we live out a love for Him, we no longer live for ourselves. The twelve, they had been indicted by Jesus, had they not, for setting their affections on the things of man and not on the things of God. We can be like that too. And what was at the very core of this selfish self-love from the two, that from James and John and the rest of the twelve, that wanted to be served rather than to serve, what was at the very core of that was pride. Pride. In fact, what we have here in the life of the twelve, and each and every one of us who are unwilling to become a servant of all and live a life of service, is the very expression of pride. The twelve don't want humiliation of becoming a slave to all. They want exaltation. They don't want the characteristics of a servant. They want the characteristics of a superstar. They want glory for themselves and greatness for themselves. Each and every time Jesus talks about his own suffering and the need to take up their cross and being willing to suffer, they don't grasp it but instead reject it and lay it aside. They're held captive by their own pride. They wanted self-fulfillment and self-satisfaction instead of finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And being satisfied in being a lowly servant. The bottom line... They weren't willing to deny themselves. They were caught up in self-seeking and self-promotion. And listen to how one commentator put it, quote, Self-promotion works in the kingdom of men, but it doesn't work in the kingdom of God. Self-denial works in the kingdom of God, but it doesn't work in the kingdom of men. Self-promotion is the world's way. Self-denial is God's way. Self-promotion works in Satan's kingdom. Self-denial works in God's kingdom. End quote. Jesus is telling his disciples that the world sees greatness one way, but I see greatness upside down. To go up, you must go down. To be high... In God's eyes and in God's economy, you must go low. To be elevated in ministry to greater effectiveness and usefulness, we must be willing to serve without seeking the praise and the glory for ourselves. It is the servant and the servant leader who is elevated. That's the attitude Jesus is calling for here. And he goes on next to show you why. We saw a servant leader elevated and now we're going to close out this portion of Scripture with a sacrificial exchange in verse 
45, in the tail end of verse 45. So back to Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is not simply teaching a principle here. I'm so thankful Jesus wasn't a teacher of moralism. It's a deadly danger in moralism. Jesus isn't just teaching a principle here to the twelve and to each of us. He is unfolding that this kind of sacrificial servanthood was the very pattern of his life. We've seen already that there have been three times that Jesus has explained that he's going to suffer and die and three times he mentions the most selfless act the world has ever known and all three times the disciples, these converted men, have responded selfishly. But have you ever noticed that in all three times that Jesus explains his suffering, Jesus has never once explained why he will suffer. Not once. He's never once explained the purpose of why he'll suffer. All the twelve had heard was that the Messiah would suffer a rejection and was going to die at the hands of the leadership of Israel. That's all they'd ever heard. And that's what, that, what, that is what makes verse 45 so profound. So very crucial. For it is here that Jesus, for the very first time, answers the question, why? This is why he suffers and is rejected. This is why he is mocked and scorned and killed. This is the heartbeat of the entire Christian life wrapped up in a few words in a single verse. The entire point of the gospel of Mark, the entire point of every other gospel, the entire point of the Christian faith is contained in verse 45. So let's unpack it a little bit. We looked at this in Mark chapter 8 verse 31, but we need to do so again. Don't turn there with me, we're going to go somewhere else. Because for even the Son of Man, The Son of Man. If you were to turn back with me to Daniel and to read Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel chapter 9, you read the following words that really speak of the coming kingdom um, of, of, of the Lord. And what's exceedingly challenging about these verses is to grasp them all in one kind of sitting but we'll do that we'll do that and if you look at chapter 7 and look at verse 9 and we'll read that I kept looking until thrones were set up And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its heels were a burning fire. 
And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, were serving him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. Then down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Ancient of days is a term for God. Yahweh. The scene playing out here is where God the Father gives the kingdom to God the Son. Now, a couple of things. You have the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and here comes the Son of Man. Notice that the Son of Man comes on clouds. We looked at this at Mark 8.31, but again, in Old Testament times, common thought was that any who came in such a way, traveled on clouds, was deity. The Son of Man mentioned here came and was face to face, as it were, with the Ancient of Days, and he was still alive. Nobody sees God and lives. And yet the Son of Man is standing right there in his presence. Verse 14. To him the kingdom was given, and to him every single one in that kingdom will serve him. The Son of Man will be worshipped, the Son of Man will be served by every citizen in the kingdom. Countless will serve him, for he is the King of Kings. Now, with that understanding, go back to Mark. And read afresh, verse 45. For even the Son of Man (laughs) did not come to be served, but to serve. The exalted one, given the kingdom by the Father, even he didn't come down to earth in his humiliation to be served, but to serve. And look next. And to give. And to give. To give. The Son of Man. The one who will be served. The King of all glory. Comes to serve and to give. Give what? Not just a moral principle. For us to follow. But His very life. He gives His very life. He gives His life in service to others. Oh, that's a wonderful story about the rice farmer. But it is nothing compared to Jesus. End of verse 45, he gives it as a ransom. 
Here you have the grand old doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. The word for ransom is the word listron. It occurs only here and one other time. And it speaks specifically of a price being paid to purchase a slave and thereby release him from enslavement. Quite the fitting description, right? For what Christ has done for all those who believe. We were in the slave market of sin. Enslaved and in bondage. And the Son of Man, Christ, dies a death we could never die, makes an atonement we could never make, and frees us from such bondage that we could never, ever free ourselves from. Jesus stood in our place as our substitute. His blood pays the ransom. This is the sacrificial exchange. This is the gospel, a ransom for many. The preposition for there... To give his life a ransom for many is only used by Mark. And it's, it's there to drive home again and again. To reinforce the concept of the fact that this suffering servant of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, died in the place of. Jesus dies a death in place of us that atones for us. And it's my sin for his righteousness. What a love. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. Do you stand forgiven this morning? As your heart beats, do you stand forgiven this morning? What a love. What a cost. You must come by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. You must delay no more and come. You turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus has echoed this whole concept of true greatness already in Mark. He's teaching the lesson and the need for humility, and he's done that already in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason he keeps bringing it up time and time again is because the twelve don't get it. And sadly, even after the lesson they received this day, they will, on the very night that Jesus is betrayed, right after the final Passover meal, reveal their true heart once again because they will once again argue among themselves who is the greatest. Luke twenty-two twenty-four. Why the ongoing self-seeking, self-love and selfishness? Why? It's because of an ongoing lack of love for Jesus. And what does an ongoing lack of love for Jesus bring about? A 
seeking of satisfaction in things that can never satisfy. The most prominent position at your job. The most successful business in town. The whitest picket fence in town. The perfect reputation. Praise and esteem from your peers. None of those can ever satisfy. Instead, striving after those things and satisfaction from those things only brings about, only reveals, and only fosters self-seeking selfishness that doesn't serve others but only serves self. To be satisfied in Jesus Christ is to live for Christ and find in Him all the fulfillment you desire. The world seeks fulfillment in platform, in the platform of esteem. The twelve were seeking the same. But look back up again at verse 43 when Jesus says, It is not this way among you. The reality of your conversion is that you no longer are that way. And the things that are prohibiting you and I from living as humble and willing servants, red hot in love for Jesus Christ, is our pride. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate pride. The fear of the Lord. To revere the Lord. To adore the Lord. To love the Lord is what that proverb is teaching us. To love the Lord is to hate pride. And so if, if pride does such great damage and just causes us to be filled with self-love, love for Christ does great good and causes us to live for others. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them that we would serve may our echo always be that of the apostle Paul who had a love for the savior that drove him faithfulness and humility and servant leadership he said the life I now live I live by faith in the son of God who what who loved me and gave himself for me we show the depth of our love for Christ by the depth of our love for one another And the depth of our love for one another is made evident in our service to one another. And as we close, I want you to look down at verse 49 with me of Mark chapter 10. Jesus is going through Jericho. We'll be looking at this next. He's going through Jericho with the twelve. A blind man, Bartimaeus, is crying out for help. Many, it says there, including the twelve perhaps, are saying, Be quiet! But Jesus calls the man... And look at verse 51. And answering 
Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? This is very, very different than the what do you want me to do for you in verse 36 when James and John came. When James and John came, it's, what do you want me to do for you? Hear the servant, Jesus Christ, says to a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? I'm a servant. I'm willing. I'm eager. I'm able. And I delight to do my Father's will. That's the message of true greatness. Over two weeks we've seen suffering and selfishness and servanthood. And you and I have the great privilege to suffer and to serve. Both have been granted to us by God. May we love Jesus Christ all the more this day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, Lord, I ask that you would bless my feeble efforts. You'd take any good from it and drive it deep into our hearts. Thank you for the word. Thank you for your son. Died a ransom. Thank you for the great example we have. Would you do a sanctifying work and a saving work today? Would you bless us as we strive to live for you? Would you help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.